it's helped me to move forward and helped me to stop feeling shame and embarrassment and guilt over the mistakes that I've made around money. I think the first step, you know, your question, Bill, is, is practicing financial forgiveness. You know, the way that you act, the way that you behave, where you spend your time, those are all reflective of your values. But where you spend your money is also reflective of your values. This whole community is for late starters, right? And I think a lot of people get stuck on the word late and don't focus on the word starter. The key word in late starter is starter. You're starting. So you should feel great about that. Hi, and welcome to Catching Up to Fi, a podcast on mindset, money, life, on the journey to financial independence. I'm Bill, and I'm a late starter. I'm Becky, and I'm also a late starter, and we're your hosts. We're here to help you with your journey to financial independence, no matter where you're starting from. We're going to talk to other late starters, experts, and we'll explore topics related to our mission. Join us as we catch up to Fi together. Hey, Becky, how are you doing today? Great, Bill. What's up in your world? How are you? Well, actually, you just told me that you got a leak. What do you mean you got a leak? I do. Well, a couple of days ago, we got like 18 inches of snow here, which I know for most people, that's going to sound bizarre. But here in the um, on the backside of the Front Range in Colorado, we get most of our snow in April and May. And this time of the year, it's usually wet snow. But this one was rain combined with snow, which I haven't experienced yet since I've lived here. We went out to shovel it, and it is so extremely heavy. It's like trying to shovel a sonic slushy. And I don't know if it's the weight of the snow on my roof. I don't know what caused it, but we had been gone all day yesterday, came home. And there's water dripping on the floor in our den. And I looked up and there's a big bubble on the ceiling where the water had seeped through and, you know, bulged out the paint. So we poked a hole in it, drained it out. Well, maybe somebody in our community can help you. (laughs) Did you plan for this? Yeah, I mean, you're a planner, you have a budget, you have maybe some sinking funds. I do. We we have, um, yes. So uh, because I'm retired, I don't literally have sinking funds in separate accounts anymore, but I have them accounted for on a spreadsheet. And so we have a kind of a major home repair built into our spreadsheet, into our forecast every few years. And I honestly would have to go look at my spreadsheet to remember what that number is. But I think every... Five years or so, I have a a larger chunk of money sitting there uh, in the spreadsheet planned for a major home repair. So I don't know if I've got, uh, I I have no idea how much this is going to cost. But And the other thing is, I don't know if this is, am I going to call insurance or are we just going to fix it ourselves? Is this going to be a repair or a whole new roof? I'm sure I've got enough money sitting there for a repair. If it's a whole new roof, then... I literally may have to make some choices about some of the other things I do, like, you know, my vacation fund or my track car fund or something. So I don't know. We may have to do do some magic with numbers. Uh, There you go. You got to have a backup plan (laughs) to your backup plan, don't you? (laughs) That's Uh, right. the, The new roof and owning a house is probably the worst expense along with HVAC and those other big expenses Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. renters do not have to worry about. That's right. People, people degrade renting, but renting has distinct advantages and can accelerate your path to FI. People, you know, think that owning a home is better in an investment, but honestly, they don't account for the hidden costs of owning a home, which is one to 2% a year of the value of the home that you have to plan Mm -hmm. for in annual maintenance costs, potentially more given the age of your home. Uh, I would lose sleep over a new roof. My sinking funds probably couldn't quite take that, especially this year with two and possibly three new cars. <laughs> it comes at once, doesn't it? Oh, my God. Yeah, you, you yeah, got the roof yeah. and I got the cars. <laughs> I wanted to take a moment to give a shout out to Australia. In the last couple of days, we've had a burgeoning element of our audience that comes from Australia. It is so gratifying to have an international audience. 
And we welcome anybody and everybody from all over the world. The language is the same. We're going to have guests from around the world. We've actually, as our first guest, had Late Starter Fire to the show in episode three. So if you're from Australia, listen to episode three, and you'll hear a countryman from Melbourne talk to you about her plans for late starting. Spread the word in your personal and virtual networks. Let's see how many countries we can get involved in this movement of starting late to five. What do you think, Becky? I think that would be awesome. I would love to hear where people are from because I, I don't think that they're all in the U.S. So yeah, yeah, people need to tell us, where are you from? Yeah, when you join the community in our Facebook group, post a picture, post your story. This is one of the most engaged Facebook communities I've ever seen. It's transparent, it's virtual, it's honest, it's raw. And I think it helps us in our mission, make people feel not alone. Mm -hmm. not isolated, that they can do it too. That's right. No matter where you are. Okay. We have a great guest today. That's the chit chat for this week. So today we are talking with Amy Caroso. She is a community member that reached out to us. We just were so excited about having her on. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation today. Amy Caroso is a certified financial education instructor, author, and founder of AJC Publications, an independent publishing company whose passion and mission is to provide women with the knowledge, skills, and tools to thrive financially, regardless of their current circumstances. She's a single mom of two boys and works full-time in public education. After finding herself desperate, deep in debt with little savings following divorce, Amy knew it was time to change her relationship with money. Through self-education and careful financial planning, she has been able to greatly reduce debt and save wisely for her and her family's future. Drawing on her experience as a former coach and educator, she's passionate about teaching other women to actively take care of their finances, allowing themselves the freedom and security they desire and deserve. To this end, she has recently self-published a book titled Planning Your Retirement Life, Secure Your Future Now a women's eight-step guide to financial freedom, even if you have no money, no time, and don't know where to start. And Amy, I think there's a lot of people in our audience that are in that boat. They don't know where to start. So Amy Caroso, welcome to Catching Up to Fi. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Becky, for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's awesome. This is our first podcast, so we get to have her first. This is her first book. And we want you to support it. I've read it. It's awesome. And it's not just for women. I'm a guy. I'm willing to read women's stuff. It's important. And we're going to go over the challenges that women face in the financial arena. But first, we want to hear about who Amy is. We want to hear her backstory. We want to hear where she started with her money scripts, what her money story looks like, up to a pivotal moment that she woke up to five. Amy, can you help us with that a little bit, please? Yeah, so growing up, I don't remember a lot of conversation about money. My parents, when they were married, I'm sure they discussed it amongst themselves, but wasn't discussed with me. After they divorced, I moved in with my father, and he did try to instill some financial education in me, uh, but he was frugal to a fault. I mean... I think one time they had the hard, he and my stepmother had the hardwood floors refinished in the house and they, he just saved up the cash for like four years to pay for it. And he was extreme. Uh, when I got my first job at 16, he required that I give him 10% of my income every week. And it wasn't something that he put aside in a savings for me and then gave to me <laughs> when I turned, became an adult, he took the money. I purchased my first car from him and he, I made monthly payments to him over the course of a year and he charged me interest. So he did these things, but we didn't really talk about why. And so to me, it just felt like punishment. I think if there had been more conversation around it, I would have had more of an appreciation um, for how things work in the world and why he was doing this. And in retrospect, I think it was his attempt at teaching me what life was going to be like when I grew up and got out of college, but I didn't have the understanding as a teenager. And I think I kind of 
went the opposite direction, just didn't pay any attention to money. You know, after I left the house, I just spent whatever came in. Um, when I was 18, I bought a 1984 Monte Carlo SS that I couldn't afford, but it was a really cool car. And I drove it all around Western Massachusetts. Uh, I can barely pay my rent, but I had that car. <laughs> uh, I ended up, you know, keeping it for like a year and then sold it and couldn't afford another car for a while. I did go to college. I got a degree in special education and I still now have a small amount of student loan debt. I'm going to be 48 next month. It has taken me a long time to pay down. Nobody ever talked to me about student loans and interest rates. I was lucky enough that I had my federal student loan forgiven uh, through the PSLF program, but this is a private loan. Uh, it was uh, the Alaska student loan when it was an 8% interest rate. Oh, that's painful. Oh, it was so painful. I have refinanced it to a much lower rate now, but it took me years to be able to do that because because of my spending habits and I my credit rating was horrible for many years. So I graduated college after racking up more student loan debt than I probably needed to get through college and then didn't use my degree. I did eventually use that, but I didn't right away. I did everything else <laughs> in the world other than teach. I, uh, I taught horseback riding lessons. I worked for a veterinarian. I worked at various horse farms, none of which pays great, and neither does public education. Uh, I eventually did put it to specific use. I became certified as a therapeutic horseback riding instructor where I worked with people with disabilities in horseback. And I also became an ABA therapist working with students with autism. You know, And then I did start to kind of get my act together a little bit on my own. I moved in with somebody. We bought a house. We got engaged. You know, in order to buy a home, you have to get your credit together and you have to pay off your debt and you need to do all those things. And I did. You know, we got into the house fairly debt-free, uh, maybe, you know, the student loan debt, I think, and maybe an auto loan. Then life kind of just like propelled me into some crazy situations as it does shortly after buying the house and having my first son. Well, let me backtrack for a second. I had a job as an executive uh, with a property management company for a while. I wasn't getting rich from it, but it was the pay was good. And when I had my children, I decided to go back into public education, but as an administrative assistant, um, the pay was significantly lower, but I had a lot of time off so that I didn't have to, you know, work part of the summer and school vacations and all those things, send them to camp or find childcare, which is exorbitantly expensive. And I feel like if I had worked, my salary would have just been paying for that care anyway. And I didn't have night meetings and have to, you know, work all day nine to five and then go to a homeowners association meeting at six o'clock and be home at 10. Just gave me a lot more time and a lot more freedom, but a lot less money. And my ex-husband was in nursing school at the time when we had my first child. And we had a family emergency. I ended up taking custody of my niece, who was two years old at the time. My son was six months old. She was two. I don't just been back to work for two months. It required going to court once a month, at least for about a year and a half. Uh, and I had to pay an attorney, which, as you know, is also exorbitantly expensive. And we needed to take out a personal loan in order to pay for the attorney. Finding free or inexpensive legal aid is it's prohibited. It's, it's almost impossible. Um, I was lucky enough to get a great attorney and things all worked out for the best. And she was able to go back with her mom after a time. But that situation landed us just really, really deep in debt. And it just snowballed from there. I think we were just so overwhelmed. We just didn't even think about it when the next thing came up, the car repair or the home repair or a vacation, because we've been working really hard. And my ex-husband was in school and we've been taking care of two kids right after having a baby and, you know. You want to enjoy life. So we didn't really think about it. And that was my worst mistake was ignoring it and not thinking about it. So we, you know, racked up credit card debt, consumer debt, um, had another baby, moved to a bigger house, <laughs> lifestyle inflation, 
we didn't need the bigger house, but it certainly was nice and comfortable. And it just propelled from there. And then about a year after we bought the house, I decided I wanted to get divorced. Um, It was mutual. But we were so down together financially um, that we couldn't separate physically. So we were separated. We were still living in the house. We'd only been in the house for a year. So we had almost no equity. And then the next year, COVID hit. And one bonus of COVID is that the housing market became a seller's market. And we were able to sell the house with some money left over. And we did have, you know, obviously split the profit from the house. I just, you know, was that, that was like a real breaking point for me. I remember just dying every day multiple times a day, sometimes, sometimes having to go into the bathroom at work and pie. Um, because even selling that house and moving out, we still had to move into a new house together temporarily, even though we were getting divorced. And I applied for a mortgage. So I was buying a home. Uh, he lived with me for a year in my home. But when I applied for a mortgage, I was declined because of my the debt that we had um and I didn't earn enough money um from my job in public education. Amy, do you remember how much debt I'm just curious. Do you know how much debt there was total at that time? Not including the mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um but including the car pay, you know, car loan and I think including the student loan it was around $60,000. Okay which seemed like a mountain to me. Yeah, not a small number. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was a real low point. I had to have my soon-to-be ex-husband co-sign on a mortgage with me for my home. And then after a year, I was able to refinance in my own name. So I had to get on a fast path to paying off this debt or else we were never going to be able to afford to live separately. It just wasn't going to happen. Even with his the amount of money that he made. So that is what kind of forced me into educating myself. Not that I ever felt like I was financially illiterate, but I certainly wasn't paying any kind of attention to what was going on behind the scenes. The bills would come, minimum payment would go out, we'd keep on living our life and and the end. Um, so I think that's most of my money story, at least the rough part of it. <laughs> Well, I think that kind of story is common in our community. That kind of story, obviously yours is unique, but it's important for us to get it out there so that people don't feel alone, that they know that their story, their life story, their traumas, trials, tribulations, and money challenges are shared, and we can work together to heal. Let's move a little bit now to, you're an expert in the challenges women face in the financial world and in retirement. Can you take us through a little bit of background on the history of these problems, what the state of these problems are now, and what do we need to do to make it different? In researching for the the book, Planning Your Retirement Life, when I set out to write the book, it was to kind of talk about my experience and then, you know, the some of the strategies that I used to get out of debt. And then, you know, I had basically no retirement when I got divorced to figure out how I wouldn't have to work for the rest of my life, which nobody wants to do. But in doing my research for that book, I discovered that women, statistically, at least in this country, are not as prepared for retirement as men are. And many of them don't have as much savings as men do, which I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by, but I was a little bit. Uh, which then led me into learning more about the gender wage gap, which I also, you know, kind of knew was a thing, but didn't really pay much attention. What I learned is that, so in 2022, on average, women made 82% of what men earned. In 2002, 20 years before, women earned 80% of what men earned. So in 20 years, there's only been a 2% bump and that wage gap, which is not a lot. And that's women on average. And so it's it's compared to white men because they're the highest wage earners in the country. 
And if you're a black woman, I believe it's 64%. And if you're a Latina woman, it's only 57%. So why? So, you know, the big question is why, why is this happening? And there's so many reasons. So one of them is that I think the biggest is that we all, you know, if you become a mother, you have to take time off to have the baby. We don't offer paid maternity leave, you know, as a law in the United States. Some individual companies do, um, but it's not common. Um, so you're losing time and you're losing wages during the time you take off to have the baby and then to care for your child. And then at the other end of their careers, women are more likely to take off time to care for aging parents um, and they're losing more time there. So during that time where men are still employed and they're earning new skills and they're getting raises and promotions, women are missing out on that time. And oftentimes when they go back after having a baby, they're going back at an even lower wage than they left at. So that that's one of the biggest. There's also occupational segregation where women are concentrated in certain jobs, uh, particularly in like a lower paid service sector. And some people say, oh, well, they, they want those jobs. <laughs> but often they don't want those jobs. Often those are the jobs that they can get. Women are less likely to go in and negotiate for a raise at their current job. They're less likely to ask for a promotion um, because they don't feel comfortable. And often when they do ask, they're denied. So those factors combined with the fact, you know, that women live longer than men is resulting in women saving less for retirement. And there's a huge population of women over the age of 65 now who are living in poverty in the U.S. because they are going through the money that they have. And then, you know, they're living much longer than men are. I have a personal story in that regard. My mom got divorced in her 50s. She had to go back to work as a nurse. She had to go back to school, go back to work. And she worked four or five 12-hour shifts a week until she was 70. The gift she gave us was independence. The price we paid was not really having a mother during those years. She was forced to take care of herself. She was a frugal Bostonian and fiercely independent, still is to this day, lives in the house I grew up in, will never leave until she kicks the bucket. Nothing we can do about that. It's just who she is. But she had a generational problem there. The divorce rate is high. She had no financial wherewithal, no resources, was left with very little resources even after the divorce. My father lives a lucrative life. He was a physician. You know, there it, it, it became a huge gap between their lifestyles. And then even today, there was an article on the CBS News titled, The Shocking Reality for U.S. Moms, Half Have No Retirement Savings. And one of the quotes from the article was, on Mother's Day, the best gift. And by the way, happy Mother's Day to both of you. Happy Mother's Day to our audience. I thought it was last week, but <laughs> it, it, it put us ahead of the game because I sent flowers last week. <laughs> At any rate, uh, the best gift you can give your mom on Mother's Day might be a contribution to their 401k or IRA plan. Do you want your mother to live the story of my mother? Absolutely not. Uh, we do need to do better. And I'm glad that people like you are out there you know, making us aware of this problem and encouraging us to do better. So what do we do to change this, you know, situation we're in? Yeah, that's a tough question, right? So one of the things that I learned in researching for this book was that if you're a stay-at-home mom, you can have a spousal IRA. I'd never heard of that before. So if your partner works, they can you can still open an IRA. It's in your name. And their partner who works makes the contributions to the IRA, but it's yours. So you do have some retirement savings that's your own. And I do recommend for couples in the book, um, the me, you, and us approach, if you remember, Bill, there's like a short segment on that. So that if you're married or partnered or have a significant other where you're sharing a home and you're sharing finances, that you share a bank account where the household expenses come out of like the mortgage, utilities, that sort of thing. But at the very least, each person should have their own savings account and their own retirement account. And that's a mistake that we made in, in our marriage is that that didn't happen. All the money just went into one pot and that was it. 
I think the first step around this is talking about, you know, emotions and money. And that's not just applicable to women, but I think women, specific, you know, more so than men, I guess, find it taboo to talk about money. Um, I think men are more likely to have conversations about money and women are more likely to not have conversations about money. And it's a taboo that needs to be broken. And there's a lot of like great women out there right now writing books and websites. Uh, Financial Feminist is a great one. Um, the Budget Nista. So it, it's starting to become its own niche in personal finance as women kind of breaking the barrier and talking about money. Because if you are at work and you don't know what the guy over there is getting paid and he's doing your same job, but maybe he's making, you know, significantly more money than you are, you need to know. You need to know about that. And you need to go see your employer and talk to them about that. You need to talk to your friends. You need to talk to your family. You need to not feel ashamed or embarrassed about the mistakes that you made. And actually, just before I came on this podcast today, I sent out the first newsletter I've ever sent out to my subscribers. And it was about financial forgiveness. I, I listened to the radio this morning and they were interviewing people, uh, you know, short clips like, oh, what do you want to say to your mom for Mother's Day? And literally every person apologized to their mom. <laughs> mom, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I started thinking, you know, we all ask for forgiveness from other people, but we don't give ourselves forgiveness. Why do we have such a hard time forgiving ourselves for our mistakes? We come down on ourselves so hard. At least I know I do. I am my own worst enemy. I am so judgy about myself if I make a mistake. And it took me years. I mean, it's very recently that I've been able to have kind of a turnaround and looking at my mistakes and learning from them and not just learning from them, but really actually being okay with it. And it's helped me to move forward and helped me to stop feeling shame and embarrassment and guilt over the mistakes that I've made around money. I think the first step, you know, your question, Bill, is, is practicing financial forgiveness. Yeah, I, I'm challenged by that. Becky, are you challenged by that too? I was for a while. And that's one of the things that that I had to work on when we first turned things around. You know, if you, and I get it, you want to beat yourself up for the mistakes that you made and say, why didn't I do better? Why didn't I pay more attention? But you know, that is the past. And we, if we live in the past, we won't change our future. We can't keep looking back. And so that's something that I talk to people about a lot is when they're turning things around is you are probably going to have to forgive yourself. And I even had to go ask forgiveness from other people. My bad money choices spilled out onto other people. And yes, I think it's extremely important to to get to that point where you have forgiven yourself so you can move forward. That's kind of the 12 steps to recovery in many arenas is uh, self-forgiveness and then asking for forgiveness from others. And I've been challenged with that. You know, the past is my ball and chain. The money mistakes are like the ulcer I've had chronically. It, it leads to burnout. Financial freedom is probably the cure to burnout mm -hmm. in many ways. In my own career, I think that's true. And getting on the path has made a huge difference where you can start to see the sunlight at the end of the tunnel. And it's just not dark and isolated and lonely everywhere. I mean, our nation and the world suffers from profound loneliness. And look what we found in this community. Look what we found in the financial independence community. Look what we found in the Catching Up to Five community. We realized, number one, we're not alone. We can start. We can start now. We can make a difference. We can ask for help. And honestly, in my life, this podcast has changed it dramatically just in recent times. I would have time off and my time off was sort of my practice retirement. And I walked the dogs. I read books. I might have worked out. I'm looking over at my rowing machine that's sitting there collecting dust. I used to run. Uh, I need to do better with my physical health, even though I'm doing better with my financial health. But then Becky and I discovered that we needed to join forces and reach out to people like us, help people like us, help ourselves. 
And it's turned my life around, getting the creative juices flowing, just like you have, Amy, in your self-publication business. Look what you're doing with little time, you know, single mom, full-time employed, writing a book, creating a publishing business. Uh, it's awesome. And you're an inspiration to others to say, yeah, you can not only do the numbers and create a financial finish line, but you can create the life that extends beyond your financial finish line into what we call quasi-retirement. But you die early if you just stop and watch TV, don't you? Yeah, I think that we need to practice reframing limiting beliefs and our relationship with money is the bottom line. And it's easier said than done. So like, you know, a limiting belief that somebody has just starting out to be like, oh, I'm not good with money or I'm not good with numbers. So why, you know, I'd encourage people to ask yourself, why, why do you think that way? Or, or so-and-so, my partner takes care of it. I don't need to know what's going on. Why do you think that, you know, really dig down and take a look at yourself and uncover what's behind, you know, like you talked at the beginning about the money story, like what's behind those beliefs about your relationship with money and then how can you reframe them in a more positive way like even if you can do one small step even if you can start with financial forgiveness even if you can have some self-compassion you know i think for the parents out there if you have kids you forgive your kids a thousand times a day for all the little tiny mistakes they make because they're kids turn that compassion inward and then with that compassion start examining your beliefs so you don't start judging yourself as you're going through that process and then think about what your values are in life like though you just talked about some of the things you like to do in your downtime take a walk or exercise and you know the way that you act the way that you behave where you spend your time those are all reflective of your values but where you spend your money is also reflective of your values and there's no good and there's no bad. You may spend your money eating lunch out every day or going out for drinks, you know, three nights a week with your friends. And that's okay. You just need to understand that your value is in either convenience if you're ordering out all the time or it's in community if you're spending your money going out with your friends all the time. Don't judge yourself for it. Align yourself with it. Make sure that you have enough to live, to have your core needs, right? Food, shelter, clothing, <laughs> you know, transportation is one of those. You don't want to spend the money from the mortgage for going out with your friends. <laughs> but it's okay to go out with your friends and spend some money on that if that's one of your values. It's not okay to overspend, like I said, you know, it's where you can't put food on the table. But I think we've gotten into a culture of like shaming people for wanting to have a coffee, you know, that they buy it. Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or wherever, you know, the whole <laughs> the big thing about avocado toast for a while. Oh, all the millennials are buying avocado toast for nine bucks. Well, so what? If they want to buy avocado toast and that makes them happy, then that is fine. You just have to recognize that whatever you are using your money to buy is a reflection of your value. And then you have to really think about what do I value? What do I value? And how do I want to exchange my time and my money for those values? I think sometimes we find ourselves spending money on things that we think are going to make us feel better. But when we really sit down and look at it, and Mark talked about this in his episode on the Playing With Fire video, they made their list of 10 things. And I've suggested that to people before too. You know, make a list of what you value and then see if it's matching where your money's going. Sometimes it doesn't. And it's a real eye-opener because sometimes there's things on that list that don't even cost money. I love uh, looking at at what you value, for sure. Yeah, I go much deeper into this into the book that's being written now called Women, Wealth, and Well-Being. And it actually kind of takes the reader through a process of identifying their money scripts, identifying their values, and then aligning those values with their spending without mm-hmm. judgment, without, you know, with practicing self-compassion mm-hmm. and not feeling like any value is a good value or a bad value, but just making sure that your values 
and real life align with your financial values. Values aren't good without a plan. Values aren't good without goals. If the best time to start now, what do you recommend people do? This whole community is for late starters, right? And I think a lot of people get stuck on the word late and don't focus on the word starter. The key word in late starter is starter. You're starting. So you should feel great about that. I love that, Amy. I love it. You're breaking down our motto. Awesome. I love it. At least least it sounds like we got it right. So congratulate yourself, number one, for even starting because a lot of people just can't even get there. So first of all, yay, you're starting. Second, financial forgiveness, which we already talked about. Third, aligning values with your spending, which we also already talked about. And then fourth, putting it in. Once you have all those things down, you need to start setting goals like you just talked about. So so there needs to be some structure around that. Once you have those values brought to the forefront, how are you going to make them be present in your actual goals? So is your goal to just get control of your spending? Is your goal to save for a home? Is your goal to send your kid to college? Is your goal to retire at X age or earlier than you wanted to? Is your goal to buy a car? All those things are great goals. It's, just, it's so personal. So it's difficult to talk about specifics because I feel like money is so personal and goal setting is so personal and values all are so personal. But once you've got your values down. I don't think it's hard to start attaching those values to your goals in life. Like I, one of my values is my children and I love my children very much. I want them to have a great life. So they have saving accounts. I try to teach them about spending wisely as much as I can. They're able to spend a certain amount of money, whatever money they get, whether it's allowance or, you know, a gift, half goes into savings, half goes into their spending. And if they ask me for something that they really want that I think is, you know, exorbitant, I say, sir, you have money. You can make a decision about that. And sometimes it cleans out their spending account. Um, But that's their decision. And I don't tell them that it's right or wrong or good or bad. They have to figure that out when they get that thing that they've just bought. Was it worth spending all my money on it? Or was it worth whatever it costs? Because now there's this other thing that I want. So I'm trying to let talk to them about that a little bit and let them learn those life lessons with the conversation about it that doesn't attach any judgment to it. So that's one of my goals. That's my short, mid, and long-term goal. <laughs> for my kids. I, I, I know from a prior conversation, your son bought a Guardians of the Galaxy glove. <laughs> he was all excited about it. It was glowing, making noises. He bought it with his money. How has that worked out for him? Does he still value it? Or has it fallen by the wayside like many toys do and he wants the next thing? It has fallen by the wayside. The thing is enormous, first of all. It's like <laughs> it's almost as big as his whole body. It's quite loud. There's no on and off button. So if you are, if your hand is in it, it's on and it's super loud. So we ended up taking the batteries out. And he quickly lost interest in it. You know, he was on to the next thing and that's okay. And that's what I kind of, the lesson that I want him to learn is that you saved your money and you spent all of it on this big giant thing. And now you're not that interested in it. And he may end up doing that three, four, five, ten more times. But unless he experiences making those choices for himself, I can tell him all day long. It doesn't matter. He has to experience it in a safe environment for himself without judgment. We did that with, with our kids. And I wanted, at first I wanted to rescue them when they Mm -hmm. made a mistake. And then I learned I couldn't do it, that really the best thing was for them to fail while they were still at home and not do it after they left home. The consequences were so much bigger. So Amy, let's talk about some of those strategies you went through your steps. And I know that, uh, well, let me ask you this question. Did you budget when you started turning things around for yourself? Oh, yeah. Yes. I am. I love budgeting. <laughs> um, I do a zero-based budget. Uh, I am a YNAB user. I love it. I know a lot of people have a hard time with it, but I tell you, it completely turned my life around. 
So I have a spreadsheet that I use for our debt pay down as month to month. I use the um, Dave Ramsey debt snowball method combined with some debt consolidation because I did want some of our interest rates and payments lowered while I was attacking the snowball. And then I have a budget worksheet, uh, kind of like a paycheck by paycheck worksheet so that I know how much of each paycheck has to be allocated to what bill. Um, many of my bills are, are allocated for the month in advance at this point. So I'm not waiting right up and, you know, to the due date to pay most of them. Um, but that takes time. That didn't happen right away, but it was a goal and I reached it. <laughs> and then YNAB is where I have all of my categories or buckets or envelopes or you know, whatever people like to call them. There's so many different strategies. But knowing where every penny is going is what has helped me stay on track. And Bill, I know you like to do more of like a 50, 30, 20 type budget. I get that people have different ways that work for them. That would stress me out. So <laughs> if I didn't know where every cent was going, <laughs> I just need to know like, at YNAB, you know, one of YNAB's taglines is every dollar has a job. And I like every dollar to have a job. I do kind of have like a miscellaneous dump. So if there's a little money left over and I might need some for taking the kids to the movies or going out to dinner or something, it can come out of miscellaneous or if a bill is a little higher, then I think it's going to be, I have something to pull from. But that was what allowed me to get on track and pay down the debt, create an emergency front fund and have some cash flow at the end of the month to invest. I mean, it really, that was the key to me getting uh, out of the situation I was in. You also talk about now multiple streams of income. Have you been able to establish those in spite of a full-time job? And if so, what kind of difference has it made in your life? I, so I do. I have my day job, obviously. The business is a startup. It's creating some income at this point, but I'm not, you know, leaving my job <laughs> for it yet. Uh, but then I also have an income producing investment. I'll plug the company that I work with. I'm a member of Hardest Wealth Strategies. And just disclaimer, I don't work for them. I'm not an affiliate. I don't make any money from plugging them. But I recently did apply <laughs> for a position as a financial coach with them. Uh, haven't um, been hired yet. But they're, they've been instrumental too. They have a, a unique strategy. So they've also been instrumental in me creating my retirement plan and having another stream of income um, so that I right now, even if I didn't have my pension, I believe I'm on track to retire by age 59 wow. without my pension. Yeah. That's impressive. That's awesome. Cause right now you said you were age 48, if I remember correctly. Um, don't age me too much yet. So I'm still 47. I'll be 48 next month. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, but, so basically, basically your path to FI after sort of a catastrophic wake up and starting from scratch is going to be fundamentally 11 to 13 years, if I understand you correctly. Yeah. And I'm hoping to move that up. So I have the publishing business and then I also so while I was going through writing the book, I um, started taking a course to become a certified financial education instructor. Um, so I'm able to work with people um, directly to help them get their finances on track. Not a CFP, you know, I don't give uh, in specific investment advice or anything like that, but more like if somebody doesn't know where to start, expense tracking, budgeting, uh, that sort of thing, or maybe they have started, but they have trouble uh keeping up with the habit um, or habit stacking, uh, I can provide accountability for them um, and even help identify short, mid and long-term goals and put them on a plan to reach those goals. So you, it sounds like you went on a journey to educate yourself when you needed to, to turn things around and, and get your finances in order and then, and now you are taking this course so that you can turn around and help others also. And I was really curious about this financial educator. So you've described a little bit about what you can do for other people. What did you have to do to get that certification? Uh, it's through the National Financial Educators Council. Uh, they're a nonprofit. It's an online course. It took me about five months 
but you can certainly do it quicker. I think it's like 40 hours of coursework or so. Uh, it's all online with quizzes and then there's a final exam. Um, there's video content, there's live coaching calls if you want to incorporate that into your program as well um, that are included in the course. I think they're held a couple of times a week. Um, there's a lot of resources. And then once you graduate with your certification, they give you just tons and tons and tons of resources to use as well. Uh, and there's free resources for the public on the NFEC website too, if anybody is interested in checking it out. Sometimes I post some of them on my Facebook page. Oh, that's nice. We we will put that information uh, in our show notes for sure. You talk about retirement planning being different for women. What do you mean by that? And how is it different? Um, well, women don't have as much savings for retirement as men do in this country. And, you know, we talked about some of that at the beginning because they're earning less. So they have less to save. And then their social security is also less because they haven't earned as much as men do. And then they live longer. So they have more expenses with less wages and less savings. So, and just, and statistically, women aren't saving as much for retirement as men are paying attention to it or feeling like they're prepared for retirement. So overall, women are in worse shape than men are in this country when it comes to retirement preparedness. What worries me is, you know, at least traditionally, not so much anymore, women uh, in the stay-at-home capacity and the non-professional capacity working at home uh, depend on their partner's income. I once was the sole provider. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. It was too much pressure. I like partnering with my wife on income. She wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, we struggled through the years of child rearing, but she never gave up her job. She never gave up her day job. She always did it in some capacity to keep the fires burning, to keep the income stream, and she's fiercely independent. And it, part of me wonders why women depend on these unreliable men. With the divorce rate being so high, why don't they consider their risk more? I mean, they're at huge risk, as you say. And it seems like men aren't focused on the fact that they need to take care of their spouse's financial life, too. Yeah, I wish I had an answer. I don't think there's any easy answer for that. I think across the board, there's an epidemic of financial illiteracy for men and women in this country. Um, but it certainly affects women more than it affects men. You know, and these aren't like numbers I'm making up. It's like do research center doing surveys and investment firms like Merrill um, who survey the sentiments of their clients. I don't know why. I mean, I we've talked about some of the reasons why, but why aren't people interested, more interested in their financial well-being? I think is what you're getting at and women in particular. My hope is that things like this podcast, the books that I'm writing, being a financial educator are all things that will help heal all of that and, and bring more financial literacy, you know, the women in particular, but to everybody. But I think people in general tend to separate their current self from their future self. So what's in front of you right now is more important than what's coming in 20 years because you can't even relate to that person in 20 years. Like, think about when you were 20 years old. Did you have any kind of concept about how you would think and feel and be at 40, 45, 50 years old, none, zero. I mean, I gave it like no thought, even at 30, even at 35, even when I was having kids, I I just couldn't relate to me <laughs> that far away <laughs> from where I was. And I think that people need to be taught that it's in their own best interest even right now, even their current self, to have some type of savings, to have some kind of backup, to have some kind of emergency. And I think at the throughout the book, the Planning Your Retirement Life book, I talk about a retirement vision. I urge people to create a retirement vision. Where are you going to live? Who are you going to hang out with? What are you going to do for fun? Are you going to travel? Are you going to work part-time? What if you have to go to the doctor? What kind of insurance are you going to have? 
so that they can really start to associate that future self with their current self and be more motivated to start planning for that life now. Because if you can envision now this wonderful life that you want to have, you will feel more emotionally connected to it and you will be much more likely and much more motivated to be able to start creating that life for yourself now. Okay, I'm going to make it hard for you then. What does it look like for you? Uh, we don't talk about numbers much, but are you comfortable in sharing your numbers? Where did you start? What number do you want to end with at, say, 59, 59 and a half? What does your spending look like at that time so that we can give encouragement to people that their numbers are okay too? So when you're talking about numbers, you're talking about the, the amount that I need to have in like a retirement fund. Yeah, where did you start? You know, what from ground zero, where did you start? What spending rate do you imagine in retirement? What is your savings rate been to get there? What number helps you cross the finish line into your new life? And what does that new life look like? So honestly, I think about it a little bit differently. And this is part of um I've been a TARDIS, a member of TARDIS Wealth Strategies for a year now, and they kind of work with you to reframe your thinking about that. So what I look at is what is my cash flow going to be? And with the investments that I have, they're not an investment firm, but through working with my coach, I'm on target to have about $6,000 a month cash flow, I believe, without pulling up my <laughs> information at 59. And so when I started working with them, that's the first thing that you establish. One of the first things you establish, how much money do you need to live every month? Pay your bills, you know, assuming you're going to have a mortgage and maybe have a car payment and groceries and, and whatever. And you kind of create like a future budget for yourself. And, you know, how much realistically do you need to just live the life that you're living right now? I landed on about $6,000 a month. So I'll have a pension, which isn't going to be a ton. Um, it'll be some. I currently don't have a Roth IRA, to be honest with you, but that's also part of my goals and my strategy and, and working with my coach. Um, right now, we've just been getting cash flow going. So I was told that it would be the equivalent of having $1.2 million in a retirement fund with like a 6% interest on it. But for somebody like me, who's a lower wage earner, that number is almost impossible. Like I don't, know how even through the course of my entire career, and I've been working since I was 16 years old, that I would ever save that amount of money. I think that that's pretty attainable for some higher wage earners, but for people who aren't earning six figures, if I was going to go the traditional route um, of just saving that money and putting it away in a 403B and hoping that the stock market is going to pay that amount of interest consistently and not crash when I retire... That sounds, that seems like an impossibility for me. So I've taken a little bit different approach to it. Well, I like the cash flow approach. I mean, it's better than looking at the big, scary numbers. It's actually a refreshing way of looking at it, and I appreciate that. We're coming to the close of this podcast today, and we're interested in your closing thoughts. Money, life, tips, tricks, and hacks for late starters in particular. My tips and tricks are, you know, everything that we just talked about. I think... There's a lot of emotion behind money that people don't want to feel. Um, and most of those emotions are ones that we associate as like negative, fear, shame, guilt, embarrassment. You know, even people who have a lot of money, you know, I've talked to people who have come into money and quickly spent all of it because they realized later um, that they had some guilt around coming into that money. Or you look at like lottery winners who have it and they just go through it and it's gone. So we think about these negative emotions associated with people who don't have a lot of money, but they exist for everybody. <laughs> so I think the first thing you need to do is, is get right with yourself because there's no tools you're going to use. There's no habits that you're going to change that you're going to stick with and feel good about if you aren't feeling kind of in a positive way about the money that's coming in. And then also, I think one thing we did not talk about is having gratitude. Even if you feel like you don't have a lot, even if you don't feel like, you know, if you want more, you know, oh, I wish I was making more. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. 
none of that is going to make you happy and be with you right now unless you're able to appreciate the things that you have and it's taken me a long time to get there believe me like I told you when I sold my last house and moved into the small you know I downsized by half I cried and cried and cried and now I'm so grateful I'm so grateful that I have this home I'm so grateful that I have a car that runs and I live from my job and I go to a job I may not earn a ton of money there, but I like it. I like the people I work with. I'm so grateful that I have two boys who are healthy and they're happy. And, you know, I'm able to put food on the table for everybody and buy people clothes when they need it. I just had my car repaired and it was all a lot. It was more than I thought it was going to be. It was almost $2,000. And my first, you know, feeling was like, oh my God. And then I was like, why am I even stressing about this? This is what I've been putting money away for. I have the money to pay for this. I'm happy to pay for this because I'm able to pay for this. And so I think you just have to start practicing those, that gratitude for everything that you have. When you go to the grocery store and, you know, and, and you're handing your debit card or whatever over to the cashier, instead of cringing, think like, oh my God, I'm so happy that I can feed my family and I have the money to do it. When you put your gas, the gas in the tank of your car, I'm so happy that I'm able to gas in the car and, and go where I need to go. Practice those little moments of gratitude. Um, it'll really change your perspective and your relationship with money. That's such an excellent tip. It reminds me of a book I read by Ken Honda called Happy Money. I would encourage everybody to read it. It is pure mindset. Money flows throughout the world. There's infinite money. Money is only ours to borrow for our lifetimes, and it goes back into the flow. He is a happy guy. He reaches a worldwide audience. The book is fabulous, and uh, I do. it's very short, easy to read. You brought it to mind, and it makes me happy. In closing, how can we reach you? How do we get a hold of you? You've shared huge nuggets of knowledge. People want to read your book. People want to get your help as a coach. How do we get there? Uh, so email I'm at Amy at AJCpublications.com. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash AJCpublish, I believe. Uh, also on Instagram and TikTok at AJCpublications. Uh, no website yet, but looking into building one. And of course, uh, my book, Planning Your Retirement Life, is on Amazon. And the new book, Women, Wealth, and Wellbeing, should be out by the end of the summer. That's awesome. I bet we can find you in the Catching Up to Fi Facebook group, too, if we wanted to. A hundred percent. I am on there liking and commenting and posting at least a couple of times a week. Okay. So, Becky, let's close up a little bit with uh, some updates for our audience. What do we need to tell them this week? The first thing that I wanted to mention was that our community continues to be awesome and support us. Our download numbers continue to grow. It's just been, I mean, I, I, I can't even wrap my head around the kind of responses that we've been getting, which tells me that we have an awesome community out there that has been underserved, as we thought. And it's just so exciting to see them engaging. And we've got some exciting guests coming up. Why don't you tell us about that? We've built a network over years, Becky. This has been kind of a twinkle in my eye and then your eye too for years. We have gotten to know people in the community who know people who know other people or friends of friends. And we've been able to get guests like J.L. Collins, a Simple Path to Wealth author, Alan Roth, the author of How a Second Grader Beats Wall Street, and Rob Berger, the author of How to Retire Before Mom and Dad. They've given us shout outs on their channels. And we'll have people like you on the show, people like Amy, to help us get the message out. And we're going to be in the near future on Choose FI and Bigger Pockets Money to get your word out and bring more people into our community. Welcome also to our international audience. As mentioned before, Australia. Howdy, mates. Welcome. We're in the process of developing our website, and there will be a robust resources page for people to turn to, to reach out to us. And in the future, I think we because we just can't get all the stories on this show with 52 episodes a year, I think we're going to encourage our audience to write down their story as a blog, and we'll post it on the website for discussion. We're so grateful for your support and the growth in the community. Please help us spread the word in your own personal and virtual networks. We've applied to the Plutus Foundation for a nomination to the best new 
personal finance podcast of 2023, please check out the show. And if you find in the show notes, the link to nominate us, we'd really appreciate your support as well as always the reviews that help get the word out there. Thanks again to everybody for being with us on Catching Up to Fi. We'll see you next week for a new guest, new information, new mindset, money, and life on Catching Up to Fi. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Catching Up to Fi. We would appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review so that our message can reach others. We are not lawyers, financial advisors, accountants, or tax experts. Please consult your own professional advisors before making any important decisions. Our content is for entertainment and education purposes only. We'll see you next time on Catching Up to Fire.